smartphone or something, you'll be looking at the text. You can turn to Exodus 33. And we've been in Exodus since September. We've only got a couple sermons left. We'll be finishing up at the end of the month um, and then be moving into a new book. And so Exodus has been um, an interesting ride for us, I think. Um, Just a little bit of recap as you're turning to Exodus 33. Um, Remember, Exodus is a theological history, right? It is telling the history, the birth of a nation, the people of Israel, the people of God, right, of their absolute rescue by God's mighty hand from one of the world's greatest superpowers of Egypt. And as they are rescued out, that they are then led through the wilderness, and God is providing for them. He's providing food. He's providing water. He's providing direction, protection, all of these things. We see them arrive at Sinai where they receive the law, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, because he is setting up a nation and this nation is to be distinct. It's to show the world that, that he is theirs and that they are his. And so he is forming this covenant with his people. We've seen the last several weeks of the tabernacle and the plans for the tabernacle to be built, right? That God is, is laying out for this people, hey, you're going to draw the attention of the world to the fact that I am your God. That they're going to see you and see your distinction and they're going to know me and worship me. And yet all of this has been grace-driven, that it was God who reached out and rescued them, that the law, the Ten Commandments, all of these things come after the, resur- after, not the resurrection, after the rescue, that God has made them His people and now begins to call them into some obedience and things that they are to do. So that brings us up to kind of where we're at in Exodus, as Exodus is drawing to an end that Moses is back on Mount Sinai. He is up there for roughly 40 days. And during this time, the people of Israel, they're camped around Mount Sinai where they have seen God come down in holy terror, right? In in power and in glory and in might where the mountain has shook and smoke and people have trembled and they were afraid of what was going on because God was speaking and giving the law to the audience of the whole people. They were hearing it. And now Moses is on the mountain, receiving the Ten Commandments in in written form from God, and the folks are are camped out around the mountain, and they basically get tired of waiting. So we saw on Easter Sunday that they look to Aaron, Moses' brother, and they say, hey, build us something to worship. And they build a golden calf. And so God tells Moses, hey, you need to go down, because the people have already broken the covenant. They've already They've already, right, chose to go in other ways. And so chapter 32, Moses comes down and he throws down the Ten Commandments. And he actually, he grinds up the golden calf and he makes them drink this bitter concoction, right? They're tasting their sin. And we see that um, some 3,000 men die over this. The last verse of Exodus 32 tells us that God is going to, he sends a plague on the people, Right, that, that judgment has come because the people have already, once they have gladly said, God, we will follow you, we will trust you, we will obey you, and they've already walked away because Moses, they felt, was lingering on the mountain too long. And so death enters, and we see this horrible scene that should feel distasteful because, right, sin requires judgment and death. 
And so Moses goes and intercedes and, and, and attempts to mediate on behalf of the people. And he goes to God and says, look, if you will blot me out of the book of life, like, but, like save them. And God tells him, you're, you're unable to do that because Moses had sin himself. That we see that Moses could not atone for the people. And so the, the scene where we left off in chapter 32 is a scene of, of fear and of panic. Because the people have turned against God, and now judgment has fallen. And so we're going to look now in Exodus 33 of how this story continues. Begin in verse 1. So the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give you it, and I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, for no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, onward. Hey, we're going to stop there for just a second. So the covenant that God is making with the people, right? We've seen the sacrificial system. We've seen all these things being laid out. And God has said, Moses stands before the people and he says, do you want to obey God? And they're like emphatic, yes, we want to obey him. We want to worship him. We will we'll do whatever he says. And before Moses can even get down with the Ten Commandments, right? Before it's, they, they've already broken it, right? Like th- their faithfulness is short-lived. That They're unable to do this. And yet God tells them, all right, I'm going to go ahead and send you to where I told you you were going, right? To the promised land. That in Genesis, that the promised land had been given, that this is one of the reasons why the people have been rescued, was that they are going to the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he says, I'm going to go ahead and send you. You're going to get it to a land flowing with milk and honey. But verse 3, but I will not go up among you. Right? Like, does, that, does that strike us with significance? That he says, you get... Where I, I'm going to send you where I'm sending you, but I'm not going. The whole point of Exodus, the previous 32 plus chapters, have been that God was rescuing his people to be their God, to be with them. They would be with him, and he would be with them. The whole point of the Exodus is God is with them. And now he's saying, All right, go on. I'm not going. Right? That the sin has consequences that it is disastrous, that this, this begins to put the whole hope of Exodus at risk. Maybe the question for us this morning would be this, that if they're not careful, they're going to get what they want, right? They're going to get the promised land, but they're going to get it without God. That maybe just a question that needs to be bouncing in our hearts and in our minds is this, if we could get everything our hearts desired except for God, would we take it? Right? If we could get the relationships, the jobs, the, the success, right, all of those things, and it just meant we missed out on God, 
would we think that that was appealing? Right? Or would we say, no, 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 God, I have to have you. Nothing else is going to satisfy me. Would we want a blessing that comes without God? What we're going to see in this passage, right, is that there's, there's this tension that if we think about sometimes maybe what you might call old-timey church, right, you think about a lot of fire and brimstone and like pulpit shaking, which I don't even have a pulpit to shake, right, and, and pound it, right, versus just grace, right, just absolute grace that maybe feels cheap, like God just forgives us and we do what you want because God will have to forgive me anyway, that what we're going to find is here in Exodus 33 is that there's tension in this, all right, that, that we should feel the tension of that there is judgment, that there is consequence for sin, and yet there's also grace. And if we live too much on one side or the other, right, we miss what's really going on here, that both are at play, that God is saying there is judgment at hand, and if I go with you, I'm going to consume you. It means I'm going to wipe you out because I am holy and you are not, and you have not been faithful. And yet what we have seen is that God has been gracious to his people as well. And so we're going to see how these two live in tension through Exodus 33 and 34 this morning. The people respond, right? The people respond as well as could be expected. It says, when they heard this disastrous word in verse 4, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments, no one put on his jewelry. It's like they realized this is a big deal, right? Like we don't want to go without him but what do we do? We can't fix this. We can't fix it. And so Moses is going to intercede on their behalf. And so from verses 7 to 23, it begins to be Moses' intercession. Let's read this. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone in. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways." that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? We're going to stop there for a second. So what we see is that the tent of meeting that is described starting in verse 7 is like a precursor to the tabernacle, right? He is receiving the plans for the tabernacle on Mount Sinai, and it has not yet been built. But that Moses would take this tent that wasn't in the middle like the tabernacle of the camp, like the tabernacle would be, but it was on the side, and that he would go and meet with the Lord, and that people would see this pillar 
right, come up before it. And they would realize that God was meeting with him. When it says that he met with Moses and Moses met with God face to face, it does not literally mean they were meeting face to face. We're going to see later in verse 20. You see God face to face, you die. Okay? What it was, it's, it's a, a euphemism for familiarity. That there was this common good relationship that was unique to anything else that was going on that Moses would meet and, and talk with God and it was unique. And so that people would see it and they would, they would celebrate and they would worship and they'd be excited because God was directing Moses. And so Moses now has gone before the Lord and he says, look, you've said that you're not gonna go with us, but, but if we're close and if I've found any favor, please reconsider. Do you notice what God says? Look, he says, you have found favor. Verse 14, and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. What's he telling Moses? He says, forget them. I'll do it with you. We'll build a nation out of you. I will go with you, but not them. And Moses, all right, he's, he's realizing he's gonna survive here. He's not gonna be consumed. But what does he say? He goes, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. He says, look, it's not just about me, it's about my people, please, right? Is there a way that we can make this work? Will you stay with us? Will you be our God? For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, if in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, right? He continues to bring them together. He's like, this was the point, God. You told us that you were doing this, right? For us, for, for us to be distinct so that your name would be known, don't, don't, don't let them go. Because of who you are and of your faithfulness, would you continue to do this? Right, we're seeing Moses mature before our eyes. Right, this is the same Moses that the first time he met with God at the burning bush, he's like, yeah, I don't want to do it. Five times, right, he tells him he doesn't want to do it. That he asked for Aaron to go and to be the speaker on his behalf. And now here we have Moses interceding on behalf of a people who have rebelled against God, saying, don't, don't be done with them. What can we do? Like, wipe me out if you have to, but don't be done with them yet. Moses is pleading. And then we see Moses' request. So let's pick up in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Verse 18 is his request. Moses said, so please show me your glory. And God responds. He says in verse 19, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, which is Yahweh. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you will stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So I don't know this morning as you come what your view of God is, how big or how little. But I'm not sure wherever it is that it's big enough. Right, that Moses is told, right, Moses is visiting with God, right, with this familiar place in the tent of meeting, where scripture would call it face to face because they're, it's so familiar and it's so intimate. 
And then God tells him, look, if you want to see my glory, I'm going to have to shield you from it. And I'll let you, I'll, I'll come past you and then I'll, I'll move it so you can see me as I, as I move on. Or you're going to die. Right? Like this, this simple, like seeing God, being near God, we, do we see him as big? Do we see him as holy? Do we see him as distinct and different than us? Is there any part of you that trembles when you think of the God of the universe, the creator, the reason that you're still breathing in this moment, that all of that is in his hand, right? Or have we become so familiar with him, right, that we're chummy chummy, right? Like, it's like, ah, no big deal. It's just God, right? We are seeing that Moses is having to be protected by the hand of God so that God's presence itself doesn't kill him that it doesn't wipe him out. Church, we probably need a little more trembling, right? A little more recognition of God being massive, holy, unique, other, separate, different, right? That, continue, that helps us not have cheap grace. We're like, yeah, yeah, God will do it. He'll forgive us, whatever, right? Because then that begins to make us like, God works for me. God doesn't work for us, right? He is king, right? We pursue him. He rescues us. Let's continue in in chapter 34. So we have this scene now where God tells him, here, I'm I'm gonna come by and I'm gonna protect you, right? So the Lord said to Moses, this is, Verse 1 of chapter 34. Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. Because remember, he's, he threw the first two Ten Commandment tablets down and broke them. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning, and he went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, right? He's saying his name. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, but visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for, if, for it is a stiff-necked people. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. And so we have this scene where, where Moses is hidden in the cleft of the rock, and God passes by, and he declares who he is by name and by character and by deed. And Moses hears it, and he sees, and he falls, and he just begins to worship, right, saying, Please forgive us, right? He doesn't stand there going, that was cool. That's all right, yeah, you're pretty good, right? He falls in worship. 
begging for forgiveness for his people, that God would be gracious to them and keep them as his inheritance to the world, right? That, and I think what's interesting here is that Moses then doesn't write down and try to explain, and here's what I saw, and it was these colors, and, and, and try in his human language to describe what he saw. He doesn't do that at all, not even an iota. All he records is what God said about himself. That what we find is that Scripture speaks most clearly through the declared Word of God. And so God reveals seven things about His attributes, about His character here. That He is revealing who He is. And remember, this is the point of Exodus, that God is revealing to us who He is and teaching us how to respond. And so let's, let's walk through these seven real quick. The first is this, that He says He's merciful, Right, and, and so the, the temptation for us is to see these seven words and to think, I kind of have a vague idea of what they mean because they're biblical or they're scriptural or we have them on a coffee mug, right? And he says that he's merciful. And this idea of merciful is it's compassion to the lesser. It's compassion to the weaker vessel, right? It's, it's a sympathy. The, the closest we have, and, and so Psalm 103, um, 13 would say this, that it's it's the way a parent views a child, right? That it, it's the compassion from a parent to a child going, I, I see that you're, you need, that you have need, that you have want, right? It, it's looking at your child and, and feeling for them, even when they're acting, right, foolish. So it, it's, it's your kid losing their mind at the end of the night, right? And in the midst of that, instead of destroying them, right, you realize it's because they're tired, they haven't slept, they're hungry, right? They're being pushed to their limits. And so you could end them, right? And instead you have compassion. You have mercy because you see them as needing to grow, as being weaker, and that you have this view of them, that God is compassionate to us. The second is this, that God is not only merciful, He's gracious. This idea is that we, He sees need, like a needy people, but who are undeserving. That there's a clear need for us to have God, to have mercy and peace and salvation and rescue. Right? It's, it's the strong looking to the weak. The fact is, church, we don't get what we deserve. Right? If we got what we deserve, none of us would be breathing. Right? We would be destroyed by the holiness of God that it's the strong looking to the weak and saying, I'm going to be gracious to you. We get what Christ gets. It's not just that we don't get what we deserve. We get what we don't, right? We can't begin to earn. We get what Christ gets. The third is this. It says he's not only merciful and gracious, he is slow to anger. What does it mean he's slow to anger? It doesn't say that he's not angry. It's that he's slow to anger. He's not unjust. He's not impulsive. He's not volatile. He's not one that all of a sudden just blows his top and just like wipes out, right, everybody. He says he's deliberate. He's intentional. Romans 2 would say this, that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the fact that God is slow to anger that begins to draw us in to think maybe we won't be destroyed. And so when we see the anger of God, it's because his patience, right, has waited. So we see that going into this, the, the next historical section after Exodus, is the, is, there's going to be some battles that happen. 
where these groups of people who are in the promised land are going to be wiped out. God told Abraham 400 years earlier, right, that this was going to happen. 400 years they have the chance to repent, to turn from their ways before God brings judgment. We see that with the Egyptians, that God brings all these plagues. He doesn't start, right, by wiping out the firstborn. He's continuing to call, right, for repentance, for obedience. His anger is slow. It's deliberate. And so when it comes, it's righteous. So we can trust that he's not just like a dad that's going to blow his top all of a sudden, right? That you don't know where you stand with him, and maybe he's going to be good, and maybe he's not. That's not his, his character. The fourth is this, that he has steadfast love. This is the idea that his love is loyal, it's boundless, it's committed, it's consistent, it's relentless, it pursues us, it's one way, right? That he loves us because he loves us. That he, he chose them not because they were great or mighty or great in number or obedient. He simply said, I love you, period. I choose to love you. And then his love remains because he continues to choose to love. That, it, that we don't outrun it. It's based on his character. It's saying, I love because I am loving. It's who I am, and so I'm going to love you. It's not dependent upon, right, our ability to keep the law, because if that was the case, he would have just wiped them out. That he is molding and shaping them through his love. His faithfulness, his steadfast faithfulness, it's telling us that he's dependable, right? He is trustworthy, even when we are. It's the whole point of Genesis and Exodus, is that God is faithful when we're not, Right, that he is merciful and loving and faithful. The sixth is that he forgives. Right, this idea behind it is that he, he lifts and he carries. We've seen it through the sacrificial system that he's given. We've seen it through the Passover, right? When he passed over and the firstborn died unless they covered their, their door in blood. Church, what this idea of forgiveness should begin to do is we should see it in effect, Right, that our rebellion, our sin, the Israelites' sin, led to a need for forgiveness, which culminates at the cross. And so if you think of grace as cheap, if you think is forgiveness is what God owes you so you can do what you want, then you have missed the point that God is a holy God, right? That God has to forgive us, it costs something. And it cost Christ his life. Right, That God takes his enemies and he makes them friends through forgiveness. That none of us come out saying we're the friend of God. No, you are the enemy of God. You've rebelled against God. You're at war with God until he forgives you. And he does it because of his faithfulness and his character. And the last is this, that he is just. Right, He's just. That means there is anger and there is judgment. It's not simply cheap grace. That there is a divide because of his holiness. That this morning you either stand as forgiven, trusting that that is sufficient in Christ, and so now you are covered by him and you don't get what you deserve, but you get what Christ has given. Or you stand saying, I don't think that's enough, I'll do it on my own, and you will stand in judgment, condemned. Right? That you will be punished for your sin and you will not be able to stand before a holy God. You will be wiped out. 
So God reveals these seven things about his character to his people when they least deserve it. They have broken the covenant before the Ten Commandments even make it down the mountain. When they least deserve it, when they are least receptive to it, when they are least showing that they are trusting and following God, God says, but here's who I am. I'm merciful and I'm gracious and I'm forgiving and I'm steadfast and I'm slow to anger. He reminds them that it's salvation is his and his alone to give, that he starts it, that he finishes it, that this is kept by him. And so he renews the covenant. That's what the rest of chapter 34 is, is him renewing the covenant. He says in verse 10, Behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. And then he, he begins to just lay out what he's going to do. And he says, I'm going to remove those in the promised land. I'm going to do it. Your job will be not to make covenants with them, not to worship in their places of worship. Why? Because they've just built a golden calf. Right? Like they, they, he says, when you're influenced by something, you go to idols and you turn from me. You rebel from me. And so when you walk into the promised land, which I will make for you, I will remove them from you. If you think that you can live in the midst of it without wiping it out completely, you're going to fall because you're going to make covenants with the easier thing. Remember, they built the calf because it was something to visualize and they could control it. And what we see is that God is not controlled. That he is far mightier and far bigger than we can imagine. And so chapter 34 is going to end with this. That after the renewal of the covenant, look at verse 29. So when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them that the Lord had spoken with him at Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses. The skin of Moses' face was shining and so Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. They wanted to see God, and so they built a golden calf. And then Moses comes down the mountain after meeting with God, speaking with God, and they simply see the reflection of this shining from Moses' face, and they are terrified. And they wanted to see God. They wanted to control him. They're bad-mouthing Moses up on the mountain, and when they catch just a glimpse of a reflection of God in Moses' face, they're in terror. They're shocked, and they want Moses to cover it up. So God continues to speak with Moses going forward like this, right? Reminding the people when they see Moses' face that who's he been with? God. Whose authority is he leading them with? God's, right? That they would not look at Moses and continue to say, ah, Maybe, maybe we should get another leader. They would say, God is leading us through this 
man. They would not doubt Moses' authority because they knew it came from God. His glory and the shine would fade, though. It would fade. And I want us to note here that Moses did not set out to have like a shining face. He didn't even know what was going on. He didn't set out to be transformed or for people to see him as holy or righteous or great. He set out to be with God. And then God transformed him and people took notice. The goal was to be with God. And so we see these seven attributes in Christ. And so this week in Gospel Community, I hope we'll spend some time talking about where we see them found in Christ. Second Corinthians 3 tells us this. As Moses is faded when he wasn't with God, when he had been a while since he had talked to him, look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all... With unveiled face, he's talking about Moses here, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So he's saying this, church, in Christ, who is the character, who is the embodiment of the divine God, right? It's Jesus has rescued us and given us not what we deserve, but given us what Christ deserved. He says, your glory isn't fading, Your glory is growing because you are becoming more and more like Christ. And as you are being transformed, the glory that Moses had in his face is coming out in you because the Holy Spirit resides within you. We're not becoming less, we're becoming more in Christ, right? Because we have him within us. Would we be reminded of this from Colossians 1, 15? Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, And then verse 9 of chapter 2 of Colossians. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Right, that in Christ we see the, the invisible God. In Christ we see what eyes cannot see. And then we are being transformed into his glory, into his image through Christ's rescue of us. And so remember, we are called to be image bearers of the king. Right? Not because it's how we gain salvation, but because we've received salvation, because we have him. It's an evidence that we are walking with God. Galatians would tell us the fruit of the Spirit. Listen to this list and think about it in in regards to God's character. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and goodness. Right? That as we are producing, sorry, as the Spirit is producing that within us, that we are imaging Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, right? That we are revealing that we are connected to God. Our glory is growing not for our sake, but because it is reflecting the image of God to a world that is in desperate need of it. So, it was costly for God, right, to forgive us. It cost Christ his life. It's going to be costly for you to be faithful, for you to be gentle, for you to be long-suffering, Right? Those things are not going to be easy because they're costly because it's the character of God in a world that is broken and at war with him. So the question for us this morning is this, is do you trust that Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf was sufficient for you? Right? The, the people did not want to wait on God. They didn't want to trust. And so in their unbelief, they built an idol to worship that was easier. 
And if we're not careful, we build a religious system that's easier to control because God seems a lot like us. And we do the things that we like and we're against the, the moral issues that we don't struggle with, right? And we, and we just become like conservative and then we don't really follow God because we're getting what we want apart from him. And what God says is, here's who I am. I've revealed myself to you. Do you trust that I'm sufficient for you? Do you trust that what I've done for you is enough for your salvation? And if it is, then we follow after Jesus, being transformed into his glory, not having earned it, not even really able to keep it apart from the fact that God is faithful and loving to us, that he holds us close, that he holds us tight, that he is enough. Right? That's the call, to trust him. And so as we live spiritual lives, it's not for our credit or our glory, but for his, that we would become more like him. So look, we, um, we blitzed through a couple chapters there. Um, there's so much richness left to connect between the character of God and, and Christ this week in conversation um, as we continue this conversation in Exodus. But let me pray for us.